You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Welcome, everybody, to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive beatniks and introverts and creative renegades who are trying to live their best lives and stay healthy physically and mentally in the process of that. I'm Leah Burkhart, your hostess, and today what I want to talk about is personal responsibility, or rather, personal response-ability. Uh, it's one thing that I admire, you know, in politically speaking, in terms of my political affiliations and philosophy, I have a tendency to be liberal, or my I orient toward the left or progressives, if you will. However, or maybe, and also, I am enamored with, I admire people who champion personal responsibility you know the the sense that we have an amount of agency in this world and should use that agency to the best of our ability to set things in motion that are positive and take responsibility and ownership so i thought it'd be worthwhile to talk about this because especially right now when everything just seems crazy it just seems like the it can feel emotionally like the world is kind of falling apart. And when that starts becoming our collective experience, our capacity goes way down. And when I say capacity, I mean our ability to move with discernment, to behave with discernment. So that had me thinking about this concept of personal responsibility. And I've had some personal experiences of late that just are really indicative of um, how all of us in our own ways are getting hijacked in a lot of respects. So anyway, let me begin by talking about what I, what is personal responsibility or as it's often discussed, because in conservative circles, it's a, a catchphrase that's used all the time. You know, we really shouldn't be having a big government because we all need to be taking some personal responsibility or we might hear this in when we're talking about the food industry oh the horrible terrible food industry they're horrible because they create these food products that are in, uh, addictive and terrible for our health and we are the victims well the counter argument to that is perhaps but we all need to take some personal responsibility with regard to what we put in our bodies it's a similar argument that was brought up with regard to smoking cigarettes. It's the, like these two sides of the same coin. You know, should we collectively hold big institutions responsible, accountable, and uh, create a collective solution that helps mitigate the negative effects of the, the kinds of things we create? Or should we take individual personal responsibility? My tendency is to go for both. I think we there's always a balance, right? So anyway, what is it that conservative circles often mean when they refer to personal responsibility or maybe individual responsibility? It's the idea that human beings choose, instigate, or otherwise cause their own actions. It's a corollary idea is that because we cause our actions, we can be held morally accountable or maybe legally liable for that. Um, and that's coming, I'm pretty sure, directly from Wikipedia. Uh, so can't take credit for that catchphrase. Anyway, though, 
So basically what this comes down to is it's the idea that we have some measure of control over our own actions and that because of that fact, we should be held responsible. Here's a kind of little stick in all of this, though. Maybe not? Question mark? So you have a whole other philosophy that's on the other end of the spectrum, uh, determinism, which has a completely different view of the world. And they will say, since our present choices and acts are the necessary consequences of the past and the laws of nature, then we have no control over them and hence no free will. That's determinism in a nutshell. So here's an example of how this might culminate. So I get into, um, I don't even know if I need to say a conflict. Let's say there's a disagreement or there's some confusion. There's a conversation I'm having with a person and the conversation is unraveling and it's going all kinds of crazy. Well, part of the reason that, so let's say that it starts with a miscommunication. He said this, I heard this. I'm now responding to the thing I think he meant. And he's defending himself based on the way that I'm now responding. And it goes and goes and goes and goes. In that conversation, it's not, neither one of us is coming to that conversation only looking at the data in front of us. We are each coming to the table with a a set of past experiences that are helping to inform the way that we're interpreting the data. So it's sort of like, it's one thing to look at data points without any sort of assumptions that are, are, are forming the way that we see the image presented in front of us. But if we see this larger trajectory, if we see the data points starting to look as though it's part of a larger pattern, we're gonna start making predictions about where we think that data is going. And this is what our brains do. We are constantly trying to make predictions in research about cognitive functioning. This is something rather unique to human beings. We're project, not projecting, we're trying to forecast the future. And in our attempts at doing that, what we often will do is lean on past experiences to inform. So it's, we're not just looking at data in the moment. We're constantly trying to take the information we've gleaned so far to predict what will be happening in, the, in a moment so that we can make the right decisions about how to move. And a lot of times this saves our tushes. So when we start seeing a car moving toward us, we're not just seeing the car move toward us in the present. We're predicting based on how fast it appears to be coming on what will happen if we step in front of said car. Our ability to do that in almost milliseconds saves our lives. But when we do that in the context of interpersonal relationships, we can get ourselves into an awful lot of trouble. So determinism is sort of defending humans in a, in a certain way, by say, or really defending life and saying, hey, 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 we don't actually have free will. That might not actually be a thing. We are victims, or not victims, but we are um, at the whim, at the mercy of past events and the laws of nature. So in terms of the laws of nature, I'll talk a minute in a minute what I mean by that. So in an article in The Atlantic, this was by Stephen Cave, uh, he writes, We know that changes to the brain chemistry can alter behavior. Otherwise, neither alcohol nor antipsychotics would have their desired effects. The same holds true for brain structure. Cases of ordinary adults becoming murderers or pedophiles after developing a brain tumor demonstrate how dependent we are on the physical properties of our gray stuff. He continues by saying, Many scientists say that the American physiologist Benjamin Labette demonstrated in the 1980s that we have no free will. 
It was already known that electrical activity builds up in a person's brain before she, for example, moves her hand. Labette showed that his build, this buildup occurs before the person consciously makes a decision to move. The conscious experience of deciding to act, which we usually associate with free will, appears to be an add-on, a post-hoc reconstruction of events that occurs after the brain has already set the act in motion. So, in English, I'm about to go and reach for my cup. My brain was already making those decisions, those micro-decisions were already online before I reached for the cup. And once I've reached for it, as soon as it happens, my brain post action starts to create a story around the fact that I freely chose to reach for the cup. It wasn't something that happened in an unconscious way, but in fact it was. Or rather, it, the thing that I thought I chose to do was something that just happened. And then afterward, I created a story about how I chose it. And here's a great example. I mean, think about the trait of high sensitivity. HSPs don't choose to be sensitive, at least I sure as hell didn't. So, and think about what comes with it. And I talk about this all the time. It's getting obnoxious, I'm sure, but the four of them again, depth of processing, overstimulation, emotional sensitivity, and sensory sensitivity. All of that is linked with a vigilant nervous system that is just highly, uh, very easily activated. So, none of us chose that and yet it influences in huge ways the way I navigate in the world. It influences the amount of rest I appear to need. It influences what kinds of events I say yes to and what kinds of events I say no to. It influences the kinds of people I'm attracted to. And talk about the kinds of people we're attracted to. There's been research done on uh, predominantly women where, in fact I don't even know if this was done on men to be quite honest. Sorry, didn't do my do didn't do my homework. Um, so there was a re- there was research that was done. So women were given a group of women were given T-shirts that men had worn. Now don't get too grossed out here. It was just everyday wear, and the women were told to smell the T-shirt because again the guy did wear it, and then make commentary about what which of the shirts smelled optimal for each individual woman. What's intriguing about this is not what they said they liked and didn't like. What's intriguing is that when the scientists took that information and took genetic material from both the woman who engaged in this uh, experiment and the shirts of the men that they were smelling, they, it yielded that the women were drawn in that sensory way to men who had genetic material that was the most different from themselves, which is to say they were being drawn through their senses to men that would likely produce the healthiest offspring. Because when you're talking about genetic material, when you take it and you mix it all together, you want as many variations as possible because then that provides the most amount of like immune protection. It's like you're sort of saying, if we all just have A and B, well, that's only there's only so many. If we all only had sugar and butter, There's only so much we can do with sugar and butter. But if mom brings sugar and butter to the table and dad brings salt and flour, well, now we can really get things that are interesting, right? So, I mean, that's a gross oversimplification, but it's just the more ingredients you have at your disposal, the more you've got to work with, in essence. So this shows that while we think we might choose the people who we love or that we're drawn to or attracted to, Things that are happening under the surface, that goes back to that whole laws of nature bit, that really we have no control over. 
The same might be true, even though human beings are a bit more complicated than purely coming from a place of the primal animal. We are still basing our previous experiences, our, we're, we're looking to our previous experiences to help inform our current or future ones. So as an example, you know, a lot of psychologists will say we tend to be drawn to the kinds of people who remind us of our parents. Well, that too screams determinism on some level. So is it really true that we have free will and how does that influence how we think about personal responsibility? So this then goes in further into the realm of like, okay, do we really have any preference over our favorite foods, our favorite color, the kinds of men and women we're attracted to? Clearly not. Um, the more we understand biology, especially neurobiology, the less inclined we are all to believe that we can be held personally responsible for all our actions if our definition of that personal responsibility is linked with this concept of free will. And think about all the things beyond all of that. Think about a really healthy human being who's just moving through the world, doing the best they can. What is it that might influence our decision-making skills in a micro scale? Well, damage to the brain. Kelly McGonigal did research uh, in her book, The Willpower Instinct, where it was a man named Phineas Gage an upstanding citizen in his community, known for being very conscientious and a great hard worker, uh, got an injury during work where a spike went through his head, affecting predominantly the prefrontal cortex in the brain, and they somehow managed to patch his skull back together and he recovered. However, the new person that that faced the world after his recovery was a very wildly different human, impulsive, quick to anger, uh, suddenly cussing all the time, erratic. So what people determined is, wow, the structures of our brain really do seem to matter. Our ability, like having a brain that's intact makes a huge difference as it relates to our ability to navigate the world. And so we thinking about, you know, okay, so that's a really extreme example. But as it turns out, there's all kinds of things that will affect our brain. Lack of sleep turns us into a kind of phidias gauge. Alcohol. Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, Talking with Strangers, talks about the way in which alcohol affects our brains. And he also makes a point to say, you know, it doesn't seem to affect everyone's brains universally the same way. But here's what is universal. When we drink alcohol, what it appears to do is make our brains very myopic. We become, in effect, the product of our environment, which seems to give some explanation for why in some environments people drink alcohol and become violent and in other environments exact opposite happens they become mellow and subdued it's not just an individual change it's based on what their environment is based on the kind of environment they're in so this is why if you're having alcohol in a sort of ritualistic uh, like I'll say a, or a, a sacred ritual the impact it's going to have on each of the people drinking said alcohol is going to be wildly different than if you're drinking alcohol at a frat party. And this is why things like date rape might be more prevalent in a frat party where there's bumping and grinding and loud music, which is not to say that we should excuse the behavior of any person who, you know, tries to force sex onto someone who is not a willing party. But again, who can we really hold responsible if what we know to be true is that alcohol is diminishing our ability to think holistically and is making us a myopic product of our environment? So another piece, if you're thinking about alcohol, that also brings us to nutrition in general. There's some indication that sugar acts a little bit like cocaine in the brain. 
And for those who are gluten sensitive, a really interesting thing can happen, especially if you're celiac. You can eat gluten and the byproduct of what happens when that is consumed is that it, the bacteria that are in the gut take it on and then produce this byproduct that behaves like an opiate in the brain. And so this person who's getting an increasingly leaky gut, if you want to call it that, because of all of the way in which it's affecting their gut, is at the very same time getting this opiate effect. So they're getting addicted to the very foods that they're allergic to. Sort of reminds me of getting addicted to the very people we shouldn't be spending our time with. But anyway, I digress. You know, so even nutrition can have an impact. I mean, think about how you feel when you have pancakes for breakfast. You want to take a nap right after. Well, that wasn't your decision to necessarily want to take a nap, but the high carbohydrate content gives you this rush of sugar, and then your body has to overcompensate by producing a lot of insulin, which slams you down in terms of your blood sugar levels. And when your blood sugar is super low, you want to take a nap. So even nutrition can affect your, your ability to make choices. Think about the concept of hanger, you know, hungry and angry. Like if you're hangry, think about how even, so they, they did, there's some research that were done on judges. Judges that were hearing cases after they had eaten lunch had very different outcomes than before they had their lunch. The more hungry a judge gets, the more severe their punishments appeared to be, even when the cases were otherwise identical. So these are the kinds of things that might be subtle, but are nevertheless impacting our ability to make what we think of as free will choices. And then, of course, in terms of other things that affect us, lack of vitamins, uh, lack of vitamin B can impact our ability to navigate stress. Vitamin D deficiency has been linked with depression. And then there is, of course, stress. Our capacity collectively right now All you have to do is look around to really see it. I mean, look at how everyone around is there, the the sense of fear that's coming about. We're terrified with between a pandemic and and an, an election and economic uncertainty and all this stuff. This is going to create stress. And when we're stressed, we're producing adrenaline and cortisol. And we when we are in the, the, the space of uncertainty, we desperately want, because we're in pain and there's uncertainty, and we want certainty like it's no one's business. So rather than open up and get curious, our natural tendency is to close down and get rigid. All of these things are influencing us. So maybe we just don't have free will. Fascinating to note, a lot of ancient modalities like, and I know I've mentioned in multiple podcast episodes my how enamored I am with yoga, these folks have said for millennia, yeah, no, there's no, you, you can't control anything. Like, oh, that's so sweet. If for a little while, you'll hear some meditators say, oh, well, you can only control your, your thoughts, your words, and your actions. Yogis would go so far as to say, nope, can't control those either. Sorry. But you do, however, have a small measure of influence. And even that influence is really over only over your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. But only influence. So then, if that's true, what is it that's getting influenced? Like, what are the real activities of the mind? And it's, I mean, there are innumerable ones. But in yoga, they've broken it down into only five. So there's correct perception, misunderstanding, imagination, deep sleep, and memory. So think about this. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, with regard to the interaction that might be happening with 
you know, two people that are having a really difficult conversation. Well, if you've done the work and you've kept the lenses that you're looking at the world as clean as you possibly can, the best you can hope for is correct perception. And that's not necessarily always available. There's also the opportunity for misunderstanding to come in. Imagination, that goes back to how we tend to, our brains naturally are inclined to make predictions about the future. And that's kind of how we go about, I think I've mentioned before in terms of uh, Lisa Barrett, her work on how the brain functions. She's the one who wrote the book, How Emotions Are Made. She described that the brain, she described the brain as basically an accountant. It's constantly keeping like a sense of like the the accounts in order so that we know how much energy is getting allocated to any number of different activities of our body you know we need a certain amount of energy for exercise a certain amount for deliberation and intellectual curiosity we need a certain amount for uh, connecting with another human well she made the case that when it comes to our relationships our relationships either add money into that account or diminish it And it's all about the health of that relationship. So what she said then is part of what our brain is constantly trying to do is make predictions about how much energy we will need to expend for any of these things that we're faced with. So imagination, again, there's correct perception, misunderstanding. We might predict falsely. Imagination is like we're trying to imagine what's coming next. There's deep sleep, which is sort of like the, not even necessarily that you are asleep, but that you are deeply um, checked out. And then memory is the final one. So those are the five. Correct perception, misunderstanding, imagination, deep sleep, and memory. And in terms of the more scientific language around that, as I mentioned, Lisa Barrett Feldman, Lisa Feldman Barrett, oh, sorry. Uh, What she was saying is, again, the brain's constantly trying to figure out what amount of energy or money that we're going to need to have for each of the ways in which our our body withdraws. So then what is it that helps us get to the clearest perception we might hope for? Like if what we're ultimately hoping for is when our brain is desperately trying to take account of what's happening around us and make the best prediction it can, well, the best we can hope for if we're using the the language of the yogis is that correct perception. What helps us get there? Mindfulness practices are huge. And I... I can't tell you, I mean, the very people who need these practices the most are generally the very ones who will push away from it with the most enthusiasm. I'll say, oh my God, that's woo-woo bullshit. Okay, that's fine. But that's a little bit like saying, because they'll say, well, what's the point? What's the point of a mindfulness exercise? And the best way I can describe it, because it feels like you're doing nothing. Well, in a similar way, it can feel like, you know, when you're on the treadmill, you're not going anywhere because you're not going anywhere. (laughs) You're quite literally staying in place and running. So what's the use of doing it? Well, the use of doing it is that it's working out your muscles so that when you are outside and engaging in something that requires those muscles to be in use, they have the power that they need. They are strong enough. That's what physical exercise does. Every time you engage in any kind of, like if you're just doing pull-ups on a pull-up bar, who cares? What's the point? Well, maybe one day when you're trying to pull yourself on a mountaintop at some point, those muscles will be quite useful. They might save your life. If you've engaged in cardio exercise, you're priming your body so that if you decide you do want to play a game of soccer, you can, yes, kick the ball, but also run toward it and and take ownership of it and run it back to the other side of the field. So 
The same is true with things like meditation, deep breathing. It, it seems nonsensical, sure, but it's the same thing as physical exercise. It's fitness for the brain. What you're doing when you engage in a meditation is you are distancing yourself from the thoughts that you are having. And that exercise, because that's what it is, is an exercise, is giving you, a, you the ability to really see in real time, oh, I am not my thoughts. My thoughts are different from, distinct from, the person having them. And if you can do that regularly, what you're ultimately building is a muscle group, a metaphorical muscle group, whereby when you're having a conversation with someone you care about and that conversation isn't going well, you can pull on that muscle group and realize, oh, the assumptions I'm having about what we are saying to each other might not be true. I'm making assumptions about the interpretation regarding what they're saying to me. And the interpretation that I'm using may be false. And it's only if you're very practiced at that mindfulness exercise that you'll be able to pull on that as <clears throat> like a useful tool when it counts. Just as when you, it's only if you've been running and running and running, <clears throat> excuse me, that if you were in a soccer field, you'd be able to do that well. <clears throat> God, I had dairy apparently and I'm getting a little like frog in the throat. Okay, so what else would help? Regular physical exercise also helps. So every time we go out there and we go running physically, it also affects our brain's ability to uh, see the world clearly. It gives us endorphins, it gives us energy, it, it, clear, it builds our prefrontal cortex. Getting enough sleep is huge. If you want more research about that, and by the way, um, a wonderful resource for both mindfulness as well as regular exercise would be Kelly McGonigal. She actually just released a book about movement and how powerful it is. And she's also written a number of books I've referenced before regarding willpower and how stress can be a good thing. And with regard to sleep, I'd highly recommend checking out Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep, as well as his TED Talk about how sleep can be our superpower. But if we don't get enough sleep, it affects just about everything about our health. There is nothing that doesn't seem to be touched by our ability to get sleep. Men who don't get enough sleep have the testosterone levels of, of men that are 10 years their senior. Like if they, if they, men who are getting five hours of sleep or less have the testosterone levels of men 10 years their senior. Like what? So when people say sleep is for the weak, try again. When people say mindfulness is woo woo, We'll try again. Ultimately, what you're working out is the capacity to think rationally and be able to have correct perception. And then finally, eating whole foods, real food, so that your blood sugar isn't going all over the place. <clears throat> all of these things will be helpful. So the willingness to take responsibility then. I almost prefer, instead of responsibility, to think about accountability, even though they're often used interchangeably. But to be accountable is required or expected to justify actions or decisions. It's again, it's akin to responsibility, but it's the willingness to take ownership of what you did. Question is, maybe it doesn't have to be, did you have 100% free will and should you therefore be held 100% culpable for your actions? Maybe the better question is, did you make the best decision you could with the information that you had at the time you made that decision. It's right back there with, yeah, maybe you killed someone, 
but maybe it's because you were driving in a car and it was raining and it was slippery and at the very last minute someone who got on the crosswalk you didn't see them and you pushed on the brakes and even though you pushed on the brakes your car was spinning like are you at fault there no I mean you made the best decision you could at the time that you could with the information you had at the time when you're getting into a conversation with a person that you love the same question can be asked of you did you make the best decision you could like are you speaking with as much honesty as you possibly can at the time that you're having this conversation another thing to consider were you operating in your integrity which is to say did you choose courage over comfort courage is having strength in the face of pain or grief and the willingness to do something that feels right even when it's frightening to you because there's something that you stand to lose did you choose courage over comfort and if the answer to that is yes well then you're operating with your integrity then that seems to lend itself well to the argument that you made the best decision you could with the information you had at the time you made that decision did you choose what was right instead of what was easy once again when you with the information that you had at the time did you make the best call that you could have given what you knew and given your capacity at that time because you also have to dial it back and remember what did you eat before you made this decision how much sleep did you get did you were you well exercised were you in the middle of stress do you have did you do you have enough vitamins did you do you have damage to your brain i mean all of these things are important did you choose what was right based on what tools were available to you over what was easy and did you walk in alignment with your values rather than just profess them and to walk in alignment with your values might not necessarily like that might mean that two different people will behave in different ways which kind of moves toward moral relativism and that's a slippery slope but I mean so I do think that there are parameters that we need to put around what constitutes right and wrong there are edges where I just simply will not go like there are there are ways in which we have to sort of say okay we can all agree that certain things are wrong like first degree murder probably wrong (laughs) like um so if it's sort of like are you walking in alignment with your values i mean if you value uh creating suffering for someone else then you've got some really pucked up values most of us do not have those values most of us are not psychopathic i'm talking about like in my case my values are my health my relationships i value integrity which is kind of cheating but you know anyway personal growth and i value purposeful work Well, knowing that those are my values, I'm willing to walk in alignment with those. I'm willing to be honest even when it's hard. At least I'm willing to be as honest as I possibly can. And there are ways in which different things will start to conflict. There have been relationships that have become fundamentally altered simply because I had a conflict with wanting to feed a relationship and wanting to feed my health. And keep in mind for me, personal health is about... Uh, physical health, emotional health, communal health, and and societal health. I'm not just thinking of it in terms of what do I not have disease. So for me, every time I pick something up to eat, is this in alignment with my values? Every time I engage in a conversation, is this a conversation I have the capacity to have right now? Given that I'm an HSP and need more rest, and I'm also introverted, am I keeping myself in the best, you know, am I engaging in a way that's in alignment with my value of health? Well, there are going to be times, though, when I have to choose between my value of good health and my value of my relationships. 
Maybe sometimes I sacrifice a bit of my health because I want to honor the health of that relationship. Maybe other times I don't. So did I walk in alignment with my values or do I just profess them? Can anyone do that perfectly? Good God, no. Um, So given that we can't behave perfectly, did you at least do everything you could to take ownership to the extent that it was possible and are you doing everything you can to fix it now? Because again, you can't do things perfectly. We've just gone over all the ways in which we simply don't have control. We don't have control, like in terms of not having free will. Again, just look at a brain map. We are influenced heavily by the, like our brain chemistry as it came into this world, as well as the different influences our environment has on that brain chemistry. So, you know, given that none of us can behave perfectly, once we make a mistake, because we invariably are going to, are you doing everything you can to fix it? You know, now that you have new data, maybe in a conversation that you have with a loved one, both of you walk away feeling hurt. And then you both come back and you say, wow, I'm so sorry I hurt you. I, I don't want to do that. I didn't mean to do that. How can I fix it? And then you both hash out how that go- how, what that could look like. You know, maybe we can't always know the right thing to do in the moment, but upon realizing your errors, are you willing to investigate what you could have done differently so that you don't repeat the same mistakes? Are you looking at the ways that you might have gone away from having clear perception? Are you willing to take steps to move away from that tendency moving forward? So if, for example, you know that you're someone who has a tendency to rely too much on your memories to inform present date... Are you willing to engage in behaviors that will help clean the windshield of your perception so that you don't continue to make those mistakes over and over and over and over again? So I guess what I'm really saying here is that we need to move away from the the concept of responsibility and move toward a breakout of response ability, as in your ability to respond. It essentially boils down to three things. And I often quote this man that I work with. And so this is not mine. This is uh, Marcel Alpatron. Um, are you doing the work? Are you watching yourself? And to the best of your ability, are you letting go of the outcome? So what do I mean by that? Are you doing the work? The work means are you investigating your actions? Are you taking steps to improve yourself? Are you owning the parts of yourself that are difficult? Are you willing to be honest about your experience? Doing the work means going to a therapist. Doing the work means doing meditation and exercise and getting to sleep on time. Doing the work means taking steps to improve what you put in, like what you digest, both in terms of the food you take into your body, as well as the experiences that you take in. Are you, we don't have control perhaps, but we have a measure of influence on the things that we choose to do. And with that tiny shred of influence, are you doing everything you can to optimize the tools at your disposal? If you're not doing the work, I'm not interested in what you have to say. It's sort of like Brene Brown says all the time. If you're not getting your ass kicked in the arena, I'm not interested in your feedback. And for those who may not have known the quote around the, the arena, that it's uh, a tipping of the hat to Teddy Roosevelt's uh, man in the arena speech. And that's the, where he says, you know, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. The credit belongs to the man who is in the arena, you know, whose face is bloody and marred. You know, he's, he, he's weary. He has he erred. And nevertheless, you know, if he's willing to get in that arena and fight the good fight, he will either know victory or 
he may know defeat, but it will be, he will be defeated having dared greatly. And so to dare greatly is, you know, the, the idea of getting in the arena, that's the person who says, I'm willing to throw my hat in the ring. I'm willing to do this. I'm willing to fight for something. And fight doesn't have to mean I'm going to cause harm to another. I mean, getting in the arena might mean being willing to say I love you to someone. Getting in the arena might mean, you know, taking a chance and opening up to a human being and discovering that you shouldn't have opened up to that person. They didn't have capacity to hold you. But you still dared greatly. Daring greatly is going out for that job that maybe you don't get or maybe you do and it goes horribly wrong, but you got in that arena. You know, daring greatly means you're not just going with what's comfortable. You're willing to grow. You're willing to push gently on the, the boundaries of what's comfortable. And I want to stop here for a minute, too, and tip my hat to uh, Andy Mort, who has the who, uh, is the host of the Gentle Rebel podcast. So he's another speaker who speaks to highly sensitive people. And he speaks of a woman who regard who talked about, instead of always talking about your comfort zone, like, get out of your comfort zone. It's about your capacity zone. And so this woman, this author, described how, you know, you want to think of it sort of like a rubber band. You don't want to just push too far too fast or it snaps. But rather, you want to gently sort of tee, like, pull at the boundaries of this rubber band. And if you do that, it just, just enough to stretch it. Then over time, the diameter will expand because the radius of what this rubber band can cover begins to increase. It gets more and more flexible. And so it's the circumference of like the comfort zone, if you will, extends and expands. That's part of the work. It's are you willing to do the work of gently pushing yourself beyond what you think is possible? Not so much that you feel like you're getting drained and that you snap. This is especially important for highly sensitive people. They don't do well with pushing hard and fast. But they do, however, improve marvelously well when they gently challenge their assumptions about what's possible. I mean, yes, highly sensitive people are more inclined to want uh, you know, less stimulus. Uh, they want to be able to chew on things a long time. They don't want to have to do things quickly or have to multitask. And they do have emotional sensitivity and sensory sensitivity. All of that might be true. And also, that doesn't mean that a like, said person couldn't be a leader. It doesn't mean that person needs to avoid romantic relationships. It doesn't mean that that person should shy away from any challenge or opportunity. So in the same vein, when it talks about doing the work, doing the work can mean going to therapy, you know, getting a coach. But it also can just mean taking a chance, being willing to be honest, or as in even being honest is rough because... I know for myself, I can be pretty good at lying to myself. I mean, I, I'd like to think that I'm open and vulnerable and honest, but I'm fallible and messy and I do things that are hurtful to other people. And I have done things that are hurtful to other people and I've had to take ownership of that and had to say, well, I can say I did the best I could with what I had at the time and given what I knew. And now that I have new data, I can behave differently. That's all I can do. It's the best I can do. I'm willing to do that work. So then the next phase of that is, are you watching yourself? So I can say that I'm daring greatly all day long, but if my version of daring greatly consistently hurts other people and not in a way that provides a sense of growth for those I'm supposedly caring about, well, then I'm screwing it up. I need to knock it off. If I'm eating foods that are constantly making me feel ill, well, at a certain point, I have enough data now to change my behavior. 
if I choose not to, I'm not doing the work. Or to the extent I am doing the work, I'm not watching myself. Like, I might not be able to have complete free will every minute of the day. But I can, after the fact, set myself up so that, like, after the fact, once I have an experience, I can take, um, sort of take measure, take account of all the, the, all the impacts of my behaviors. And once I watch that take place enough times, it's like, okay, well, clearly this continues. The same thing I'm doing over and over is having the same outcome. Let's try something new. I try an experiment. Okay, well, what does that experiment yield? What data does that experiment give to me? The new experiment might be trying to get into a new relationship. It might be changing the way I navigate in a current relationship that I care very much about. I mean, I'm currently right in the middle of a friendship that I'm trying to heal or not heal but I, it, it's it's showing signs of um of where the, the the friendship that I'm in the way that we've behaved isn't working anymore so the only way forward is either for us to terminate this friendship or for us to restructure it so that there's more space for us to be more whole humans instead of just people who are playing a role for each other well that's hard stuff man And we may be doing things that are going to cause a lot of pain to each other in the process of this, but we're willing to engage in that set of experimentation, like that set of experiments. So doing the work is trying something new and then watching what those new things yield. That's the best we can do. And once we get that data, it's always back at, okay, well, what am I doing and what am I getting? When, you know, this is part of what aggravates me when people say oh well you know I'm just a blank and that's why I can't change well okay maybe in that moment you you don't have to be perfect every minute of the day that's true you don't have control over your actions every minute of the day but you do have influence and this brings us to this concept of taking response you know get accumulating the ability to respond when you are engaging in a set of behaviors and you're doing the same thing over and over and getting the same results and there are people who then give you tools that might help you it's like the person who's stressed all the time and you say well you might consider engaging in meditation or mindfulness-based exercise and they say i don't have the time for that or when people say well my job is really stressful and it makes me feel physically ill but i'm not willing to change my job and it's like well okay um then you either need to own that you're always going to be miserable and you're okay with that or you need to take on like you need to to realize you do have the ability to respond not responsibility not in the sense that you are responsible for all of your misery that's not fair but you do have response ability you there is some space that perhaps you're not seeing that is available to you and you're choosing not to take it that is your life and that is your choice. But I will say there is something, I, I was talking to a really close friend of mine about this. I detest when, I shouldn't say I detest the people who do this, but I detest this tendency that some people have. They will engage in behaviors that cause a lot of pain for themselves and the people around them. And then make a claim that they are the victims of that pain. You can't, at the same time, (laughs) engage in behaviors you know will hurt you while also claiming that you are a victim of the outcomes. 
on some level, one of two things needs to happen. You either need to say, yep, my job is stressful. I'm taking ownership of that. I'm not going to change it. I like this. This is, you know, like it kind of some pitfalls, but I'm into it. I'll take ownership and I'm not, I don't want to change it. I, will, I acknowledge this causes me stress and it makes me feel physically uncomfortable, but I don't want to change it. The, the good outweighs the bad. Same thing with relationships. I acknowledge this is a really hard relationship and that I'm continuing to stay in it and I will own that. I am unwilling to leave it. I want this relationship more than I want the peace that might come of, not, of leaving it. I value it that much. Fine. Great. Fabulous. That's taking ownership. That is showing your ability to respond. But it's a very different thing if you say, oh, I'm really in this horrible relationship and I don't like it and I could leave, but I don't want to. And then going around in circles and then saying that you're a victim of it. And to be clear, I'm not talking about abusive relationships, which is basically a whole nother podcast that we could get into because there's so much tangling and untangling that would need to go on there. But I'm just simply talking about when two people that are relatively healthy, you know, who among us is really healthy, but I mean, pretty stable, pretty healthy, and they under they realize they're just not compatible. And they're doing everything they can. And they're basically bumping their heads against a wall. And they're saying, Nope, I'm not gonna leave it. And then at the same time being saying that they're a victim of it. Nah, no, that's not showing your ability to respond. You're not doing the work. You're not watching yourself. Or maybe you are doing the work, but you're not really watching what's happening. The final one, by the way, is are you able to let go of the outcome? Because that's got to be perhaps that's probably the most important piece in all of this. You got to do the work. You got to watch yourself and to the best of your ability, let go of the outcome. Because that's all about like when you get in that arena, you've got to own the fact that you don't know what's going to happen. You might come out victorious. You might get your ass kicked. But damn it, you got in that arena and you now have information you didn't have before having walked in there. That's potent and powerful stuff. So what a lot of people I find have a tendency to do is they'll stay wrapped up in misery because they'd rather deal with the devil they know than the devil they don't. And they're terrified that if they don't do something, like if they go off and try something new, that it might not go well. And my response is, yeah, it probably won't go well. You don't know. You can't know. But why not embrace the spirit of experimentation? Why not, instead of always asking, how do I do this perfectly, go and ask the question, how do I do this better? What if I tried this? And if it goes horribly wrong, you, you step back and you say, I made that attempt. It was a good attempt. I had good intentions. And it went really, really horribly wrong. I will take accountability for that. Like I will own that I did that thing and that I had good intentions and it didn't go well. Now I have new data. I'm going to take that data and I'm going to try something new again. I'm going to adjust and adjust. It's that same concept of, you know, when, uh, oh no, who was the guy who invented the light bulb? Oh, I'm going to look it up. I'm definitely going to do that while I'm jabbering on. But the whole concept was, you know, the, he was made fun of because evidently, uh, you know, he had tried to make, I don't know, a thousand different light bulbs. And he was he's just like, how did you do that? You know, like, how did you continue on to try and make this thing, even though you kept failing over and over and over and over and over? It's Thomas Edison, by the way. 
And Thomas Edison responded by saying, what are you talking about? I didn't fail to make a light bulb 999 times. That's not how that worked. I just successfully found 999 ways how not to make a light bulb. They were all successful experiments where in each case I was proved my hypothesis was disproven. So when you're thinking about responsibility, it's not responsibility like I know everything that I do is going to go well. It's not responsibility like I have complete control over my actions. It's simply building and improving upon your capacity to respond. It's, you know, every time you engage in mindfulness work, you remove the um, the dust from the windshield of your perception so that you can see a little bit more clearly your surroundings. And when you're driving, it's still a fallible human being driving that car, but you can see a little bit better. You're a little bit less likely to mistake a tree branch for a person and then a little bit less likely when that person steps on the curb to run that person over. It's not perfect, but it's better. Every time that you self-parent yourself and you get into bed sooner and get more sleep, you're going to be a little more likely to wake up the next day and have more capacity to make good decisions. You know, every time that you engage in eating healthy food, you're going to increase the likelihood that your blood sugar will be stable and your decision-making skills will be better. Not perfect, but you're optimizing the tools at your disposal. Every time you drink alcohol, you understand that you're making a cost, like that's a cost. So I bring all of this up because when you're talking about creating a life that is, you know, your best life and a life that also doesn't make you go crazy and ideally leaves you feeling healthier than when you started, you know, this is especially helpful for highly sensitive people who are really constantly in a situation where they need to be experimenting with new ways of doing things in this life. Because the world we live in wasn't built for highly sensitive people. It wasn't, it's not like it's a horrible, terrible place that we can't, that, you know, can't accommodate us or that we can't build a little burrow into. That's not it at all. But the world we live in was really built by and for the majority, which is the other 80% of folks who have a less vigilant nervous system. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. That's fabulous. But for the rest of us, what it means is we've got to get more creative about how to live a life that looks like us. And even if you don't identify as a highly sensitive person per se, you are still uniquely yourself. You've probably got some tick, some injury, some challenge that is unique to you. Maybe for you, you have a a brain chemistry that's different than the rest of us or a temperament that's easily uh, misconstrued or maybe you have a physical ailment that's a challenge or you know we are all of us working with something that is uniquely our own and so we are all of us having to be creative on some level with regard to what you know what we have to do to create a best life quote unquote and what that would look like so for highly sensitive people that means getting really creative about creating a life that doesn't have too much stimulation in it so that we can operate at our best like our you know full capacity we are more likely to be creative and thoughtful and productive people when we've gotten enough rest when we are eating well we're not drinking a ton of caffeine and constantly getting inundated with to-dos so okay we've got to know that stuff and build experiments in our lives to see well how do we create a life that looks like that how and it's a day-by-day set of experiments so whether the thing that you're working on is improving your personal life um, your relationship your job your health it's 
always coming down to taking personal response ability. You're trying to improve upon that capacity. It's not about being perfect. It's about improvement. It's about getting a little bit better. It's about willing to engage in tough conversations, both with yourself as well as with others. So I hope this was helpful. And if you have questions about this or, I, you know, even comments, maybe disagreements even, you know, about, well, do we have free will? Don't we? What is the difference between personal responsibility and response ability? Uh, send me an email, leah at thehealthysensitive.com. You're also welcome to track me down through my website. It's www.thehealthysensitive.com. And in terms of any updates with regard to the membership site, uh, I'm still, you know, making additions to some of the, like, you know, if you decide you want to become a member on the Healthy Sensitive, there's the Healthy Sensitive Samplers. If you want more access to a greater amount of the content I'm creating, you can also, uh, and or you want to support the podcast, again, www.thehealthysensitive.com. Just go to the membership site. Um, and even contribute $5 a month. Again, or if you just want access to a little bit more of the content, you can do the samplers. And then if you want access to all of it, you know, so there's lots of options for you. And I'm constantly trying to make additions. And if there's anything you can think of uh, that would be helpful and supportive to you or to a healthy, sensitive community, please reach out. I'm always looking to try and improve, talking about, you know, talk about trying to get in the arena and make things better. And when it's just me, I don't always do it right. So I'd love feedback if you've got it to give. Um, outside of that, I think that just about covers it. So yeah, hope you have a fabulous week. Bye.